Well, welcome to another video as we go through the Word of God and we're continuing today our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians as we look at chapter 5. It's another chapter that I'm going to break up into two parts, verses 1 to 13 and verses 14 to 28. Just a reminder, if you've not had a chance to uh, like uh, my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, or uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards. Links are in the descriptions below. Like, comment, subscribe, and share. And let's get these out to as many people as possible. Love reading your comments. And they are so encouraging and inspirational to other people. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, Paul here continues in the first half of this chapter talking about the, the coming of Jesus and how the second coming of Jesus and how Jesus is coming and how we need to be ready for that day. So he goes straight from the end of chapter 4 straight into the beginning of chapter 5 and we know that because it starts with the word but. And so it's almost like it's almost like a continuation. You could you could really very easily join the two together. So let's start verse 1 of chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. The Thessalonians have been so well taught about the return of Jesus and other prophetic matters uh, in just a few short weeks that Paul was with them, that he had confidence that they had an idea of the prophetic times that they lived in uh, and that they could actually already discern the seasons of the present culture. This is very impressive because you have to remember Acts 17. You can read this, Acts 17, chapter 2. He's only with them for weeks. And, and in that time, he teaches them about the prophetic times, the seasons, uh, the seasons regarding the return of Jesus. I actually think the Apostle Paul would be very surprised uh, today to see that the teaching of the return of Jesus is considered almost unimportant or we don't, you know, we don't need to do it. Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day that they were not able to discern the signs of the times in Matthew chapter 16. We need to study the scriptures. We need to look to the world around us uh, so that we can be aware of the times and the seasons we are in. We're in an interesting time and season right now. Whenever you watch this video, you will be in an interesting time and season. Uh, verse two, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Paul here quotes a familiar Old Testament idea, which is the idea behind the phrase, the day of the Lord. And it is that the day of the Lord means God's time. Mankind has his day and the Lord has his day. In the ultimate sense, the day of the Lord is actually fulfilled when Jesus judges the earth and, and returns in great glory. Now, the Thessalonians knew, uh, because they had been taught, that they couldn't know the day of Jesus' return. That day was going to remain unknown. It was going to come as a surprise, as a thief in the night. Now, if you ever know anything about thieves, they don't announce the time of their arrival. Now, some take the idea that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night to mean that nothing can or should be known about God's prophetic plan for the future. But Paul indicated that they definitely knew that the time could not be definitely known. So 
Remember, Paul said, don't be ignorant about these things. Uh, and so there, there is a prophetic plan for the future. So Paul, but, but Paul was one, not one to get carried away with prophecy uh, and set dates. Uh, why? Because Jesus himself said, I forbid you to set dates. He, he said that in Matthew 24, that the day and the hour, no, no, no one knows. God wants this day to be unexpected, but he wants his people to be prepared for the unexpected. That's our responsibility as Christ followers, prepared for the unexpected. Verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Uh, the, the, the unexpected nature of that day is going to be a tragedy for anybody who is an unbeliever and has not accepted the free gift of salvation. They're going to be lulled to sleep by political and economic conditions, and all of a sudden they're going to be very rudely awakened. They're going to hear this incredibly frightening verdict of, you will not escape. And this sudden coming uh, in a time when many others will say, peace and safety, it has to be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24. This is another moment of awareness for us between Jesus coming back for the rapture, before the tribulation, the period of the seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus returning again for the elect of Matthew 24. The coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24 happens at a time of great global catastrophe uh, where nobody could possibly say peace and safety. That's the difference. See, the reason people will, the, the First Thessalonians chapter 5, he was talking about in First Thessalonians chapter 4, is saying, no, when Jesus comes back pre-tribulation, everybody's going to be like, oh, peace and safety, we're all good. Matthew 24, it's going to be a global catastrophe. Things are not going to be good. Nobody's going to say that. So comparing passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24 tells us that there are different aspects to Jesus coming back. One aspect of his coming is at an unexpected hour. Another is when it's positively predicted. Uh, one is coming back to a business as usual world. The other is a, a world of total chaos. One is him coming to meet us in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. The other is his coming with all the saints, Matthew 24, talked about in Zechariah chapter 14. Now, he talks here about uh, the labor pains upon a pregnant woman, uh, which, which suggests inevitability and unexpectedness. In other words, when, when a woman's pregnant and she's going through labor pains, there, there's an inevitability. She's going to give birth. But the exact time that she's going to give birth, she still doesn't know until the actual time of birth. Jesus uses the same idea in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, and he spoke of the calamities that would be preceding the end times as the beginning of sorrows, which is literally the beginning of labor pains. So the idea is both of giving birth to a new age and implying an increase in intensity and frequency in these calamities, the same way the woman gets closer and closer to birth. Verse 5. Uh, well, let's read verse 4 first. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, capital D, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of 
darkness. So in addressing the behavior here, Paul simply tells the, the Thessalonian Christians that they should be who they are in Christ. God has made us sons and daughters of the light, sons and daughters of the day, sons of the day, the Bible says. And, and the time when we were of the night or of the darkness, that's in the past, once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So now we simply have to live up to what God has made us. Now, you have to understand that this day should overtake you as a thief. That's what we don't want to have happen because Paul says that this should not happen for the believer. You shouldn't be overcome by them as a thief. If you're a believer and you're living according to the nature of a son of light and a son of the day, then you'll be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, now, in some respect, obviously, this, the second coming of Jesus is going to be a surprise for everyone, believers and non, uh, because we don't know the day nor the hour. But for Christians who know the times and the seasons, it's not going to be a complete surprise. No one knows the exact hour a thief is going to come, but we live in general preparation uh, against thieves. The problem with that is that there's been too many people during history uh, even in my lifetime, I said, yep, God's coming back. Man, I mean, when I was growing up, Jesus was coming back in 1988. Eight reasons for 88 or something like that. There was a book called. Uh, and then, then people I knew, no, Jesus is definitely going to come back before I die. Then he was coming back in 2000. Then he was coming back in 2017. Then, uh, Listen, we don't know, but we have a general sense based on what is happening through other areas of Bible prophecy. Uh, verse 6, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Because we don't belong to the night of darkness, our spiritual condition should never be marked by sleep. Uh, now, spiritually speaking, we should always be aware, we should always be active, we should always be watching, we should always be sober. Now, Paul uses a different word, a Greek word, for the word sleep here that he does in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about those who are asleep in Christ. Uh, D. Edmund Hybert. The word sleep is here used in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's used metaphorically to denote indifference to the spiritual realities on the part of believers. It is a different word than that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for the sleep of death. It covers all sorts of moral and spiritual laxity or insensibility. So sleep here speaks uh, of so much that belongs to the world, uh, which is the others, by the way, uh, but should not belong to Christians. Now, think about this. When you sleep uh, physically, when, when, you know, you're ignorant. In other words, you don't know what's happening around you. When you sleep, you're, you're living in a, in a time of insensibility. In other words, nothing makes sense of anything. You can't make sense of anything. Particularly if you wake up and you're like, oh, what's going on? Speak, uh, you can't defend yourself. It's defenseless when you're sleeping. You, you can't protect yourself. Uh, when you're sleeping, you're inactive. You're not doing anything. You're not achieving anything. And uh, in, in a sermon titled entitled Awake, Awake by Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, he talked about the tragedy of the sleeping Christian with three very powerful pictures talking about these verses. He, he, this is the, 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 the first. A city suffers under the plague with an official walking the streets crying out, bring out the dead, bring out the dead. All the while a doctor with the cure is in, who has his cure in his pocket is asleep. 
Number two, a passenger ship reels under a storm and is about to crash on the rocks, bringing near certain death to the hundreds of passengers all the while the captain sleeps. And thirdly, a prisoner in his cell is about to be ready to be led to execution. His heart is terrified at the thought of hanging from his neck, terrified of death and of what awaits him after death. All the while, a man with a letter of pardon for this condemned man sits in another room and he sleeps. That's what Paul says we can't do. Now, when he talks about being sober, he doesn't mean humorless, okay? It has in mind somebody who knows the proper value of things. That, that, therefore, they don't get too excited about the things of this world. The person who lives his or her life for fun or entertainment is not somebody who is sober. Paul didn't have in mind the sort of people who stamp down all enthusiasm and say, no, no, you can't be excited for Jesus. No, no, no. Paul himself was one of the most enthusiastic human beings that's ever lived, the most enthusiastic follower of Jesus. Uh, he was accused of religious fanaticism. So that's not what he's talking about. For those who sleep, verse 7, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. The opposite of spiritual watchfulness is spiritual sleep. And the opposite of spiritual sobriety is to be spiritually drunk. So as Christians, we are of the day. So we must watch. We must be sober. Verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is interesting because Paul here again uses the images of a soldier's armor to illustrate the idea of watchfulness. A soldier is a very good example of someone who must watch and must be sober. They can't, they can't, they, they, they can't not be. And not only is that about their mental state, they are equipped with armor to react in the moment. And, and when, when, when you compare the description of a spiritual armor that's found in Ephesians 6, uh, there's not an exact correlation between that and the spiritual armor here. So what could you take from that? You could take that Paul talks and about the idea of spiritual armor as a helpful picture. It, it's not something rigid in its particular details. And he says here that faith and love are represented by the breastplate. Why? Because the breastplate is what covers your vital organs. No, no, no soldier's ever going into battle without his breastplate. And no Christian is equipped to live the Christian life without two things, faith and love. What's the third fundamental Christian value? Hope. The hope of salvation is represented as a helmet here because the helmet protects the head. It's just as essential as a breastplate. No good with that. You need your head and you need your vital organs. Uh, hope isn't used in the same sense of like hope, wishful thinking. No, no. It's in the sense of a confident expectation of God's hand in the future. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Before we had the hope of salvation, uh, we had an appointment to wrath, experience the wrath of God. We no longer have that appointment to wrath. We now need to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about wrath. It's important to understand 
that Paul means the wrath of God, the righteous, horrible punishment from God for our horrible behavior. We're saved from the world, the flesh. We're saved from the devil. But first and foremost, we're actually rescued and saved from the wrath of God that we actually deserve. And Paul's whole context here is the believer's rescue from the wrath of God. David Guzik, our appointment to wrath was appointed in two ways. First, because of what Adam did to us and the whole human race, we are appointed to wrath, Romans 5, 14 to 19. Second, because of our own sin, we are appointed to wrath. When Jesus died on the cross, he stood in our place in our appointment to wrath and reschedules us with an appointment to now obtain salvation. As believers, when we think we are appointed to wrath, we show up for the appointment that was cancelled by Jesus. Isn't that a, a wonderful picture? And the idea is that Jesus died in our place. Not simply that Jesus died for us in the sense of doing us a favour, but that he died as a substitute for us. And that's why he said God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Paul puts two very interesting ideas side by side here. Uh, the appoint part of it emphasises God's sovereignty. He can do whatever he wants. But the obtain part is a word that emphasises human effort. Together, they show that the full scope of salvation involves both divine initiative and human effort. Now, he goes on to say, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The promise of unity with Jesus can't be broken, no matter if we live or we die, wake or sleep, we're always going to be with Jesus. He died for us, whether we wake or whether we sleep. Jesus' death is not softened by calling it sleep, Jesus' death, but our death can be called sleep. Why? Because his death was a real tormented, horrible death. Ours is just sleep, because we get to then go on to an eternity with him in his presence because of his absorption of all that wrath. Verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Paul again tells us to take comfort. Uh, sorry, not, not to take comfort, but to give comfort. So in other words, whenever you want to take comfort, you need to give comfort. Comfort. It's, it's a principle that runs through the entire word, word, word of God. When you need encouragement, give it to somebody. Um, if, if all Christians had a purposeful heart to comfort one another, then by default, we would all be comforted by other people. It would all work. And we're meant to edify, to build up one another. When we have our first interest in, in building up other Christians, then God builds us up. Uh, that's the idea. The idea of the church that Paul talks about is a, a, a church full of active participants who are comforting and building up each other, not passive spectators who just go to church to be fed a sermon and become spiritually fat. No, we have a role to play. And Paul says, just as you also are doing. It wasn't that there was no comfort among the church in Thessalonica, uh, or as if no one was being edified. What Paul was saying is, no, you've got to continue to comfort and continue 
to edify, continue to build up and keep doing it more and more and more. Verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Okay, so Paul now shifts his focus to telling the Christians in Thessalonica that they need to recognize their leaders. And the leaders here are described in three different ways, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, Those who labor among you, over you, and admonish you. Leaders are recognized not by their title, but by what they do. Uh, A title's fine, but only if the title's true, (laughs) and only if the title actually describes what the person really is before God and man. Um, Leaders are meant to work. Leaders are over you in the Lord. Leaders are recognized as being over the congregation in the sense of ruling and providing headship. Uh, As a shepherd is over the sheep. This describes a very clear and legitimate order of authority. And thirdly, they're there to admonish you. Leaders are recognized as those people who admonish the congregation. Admonish means caution or to reprove gently, to warn. Leon Morris says of this word, while its tone is brotherly, it's big brotherly. (laughs) Uh, Verse 13. And to esteem them, these leaders, very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Christians are to esteem spiritual leaders. They're to esteem them very highly in love. They should do this for the, for, for the work that the leaders are doing. And for that sake, they don't deserve esteem because of their title or because of their personality, but because of their labor on behalf of God's people. Now, Paul twice mentions the work of ministry and connects it to the respect Uh, that these servants should have from those that they serve. So what does that do? It suggests a couple of things. Number one, if uh, the congregation knew and understood the work that was done by those with spiritual oversight over them, then they would appreciate and respect their leaders more. Here, here, I can say that all day long. Work, number two, is an essential aspect of the ministry. There's no place for a lazy pastor. Here, here, I say again. Lazy pastors give all of us a bad rap. Um, If a Christian cannot esteem and love their pastor, then they've got to get on their knees and ask the Holy Spirit to change their heart. Or go to a different church. Go somewhere where you can put yourselves under a pastor that you do esteem and love. Um, Now, with... This very simple command as we get to the end of today. Paul says that Christians should simply put away all their squabbles and arguments, which is a great way to esteem and love the leaders of your church. So what do we observe from what we've read today? Number one, Jesus is coming back soon and very soon. We are going to see the king. Uh, And I'm excited about that. Um, in the meantime, between now and when Jesus comes back, I have a responsibility to be a spiritual leader in the church as a pastor. You have a spiritual responsibility as a congregant, or maybe you're a fellow pastor, I don't know. Uh, And we both have responsibilities. I have a responsibility to work to serve you. You have a responsibility if I'm working uh, for you and I'm pointing you to Jesus to esteem me highly in love. 
okay? I can tell you that it's not fun being a pastor when people treat you like dirt and don't esteem you, uh, particularly when they don't esteem you in love and they do it in a patronizing way. Uh, I take my Hebrews 13 responsibility for the souls that I shepherd. I take it very seriously because I have to give an account for those souls in eternity one day. And that is something that's worthy of esteem, but it's very hard to talk about. I mean, even just saying it now, I'm recording it, but, uh, but you know, I'm just, I'm rightly dividing the word of truth right now. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to teach you and I'm uh, trying to go through this word and explain to you what it means and then what do I observe for you and for me. So let's pray right now that God would just bring us all together in the unity of his spirit getting ready for the soon and very soon moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us these wonderful words of assurance of your, your return. And I pray, Lord, that we would have an understanding of what our roles are during that time of waiting for you to come back, both in relation to how we share your message, how we make sure that we're not asleep, how none of us are lazy, but God, we all have a role to play. I pray, Lord, for any Christian leader watching this, Lord, right now who might be discouraged because they haven't been highly esteemed. I pray, Lord, that uh, that they would understand, God, that you, you, you love them, you care for them. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would stir their sheep right now to, to esteem those leaders in love as they see them working so hard for them, laboring for them to experience the best in Jesus Christ. Help us all to work together, Lord. Help us to be unified. Those people who are called to ministry to be pastors and lead the sheep and those people who are called to be sheep and, and take what the pastors are teaching and encouraging them in and apply it to their lives outside of their uh, church life. God, I pray, Lord, that we would all work together for good in uh, Jesus' name, I pray that we would allow you to work together for good. We know all things work together for good, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them who love Christ Jesus and are the called according to your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.